Mark, if you'd like to turn there. Mark chapter 5. We'll be starting in verse 1. The Word of God says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, immediately there men met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have, you, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. We pray that through Dan's exposition and proclamation of your word this morning, the destruction of the devil and his demons would continue. Please help us to be good hearers of your word this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Hopefully everyone can hear okay. I know, uh, quick update, the, the air conditioning, they've got the parts manufactured, and so they're coming in this week to get that fixed. So hopefully by next Sunday, if not, then the week after that, um, we should be able to tone down the fans a little bit, uh, be able to take the edge off with the heat. So I appreciate everyone's patience and endurance um, working through it for right now. We've come to a section in Mark, we introduced it a couple weeks ago as we came to the section where Mark now groups together some stories about Jesus that are going to show his power and his authority. That indeed, Jesus, as he comes and offers the kingdom, he's going to be demonstrating that kingdom power and authority. He'll do so over nature. He'll do so, we'll see today, over darkness He will do so over sin and death as we go forward through Mark. And so he puts these, Mark puts these together here to show us the power of our Jesus Christ. And yet, it's not simply just a demonstration of power that we were to look at Jesus and see he is powerful. But we see that these mighty acts of Christ, that his word, his message evokes a response demands a response, a judgment from those who experience, from those who are seeing and watching what is going on. We see a whole lot of different reactions of defensiveness, of of disdain. We see some of faith. And in in these last last sermon that we looked at, at the, the, the calming of the sea, and now today as we look at the healing of this demoniac, We see really the first steps of discipleship that involve us understanding who our God is. That He cannot be controlled, that He cannot be confined, that He is not manageable to any sort of category or stereotype. Jesus comes in full authority and full power. And He comes in what He offers. He, He offers it and He stands alone as the one with authority to offer it. We do not get to shape and to change who Christ is. 
And when he comes in this altogether transcendent majesty, we begin to see that the first step of discipleship here is going to be to fall at his feet, to submit to this authority, because either we'll deny it, we'll defend ourselves against it, we'll reject it, or we will fall with fear and faith before his feet. In Mark, the revelation of the identity of Jesus Christ is central, that Jesus is the Son of God. But again, that never happens in a vacuum. Jesus' self-revelation as God never happens in a vacuum, but it elicits a response from us. There is no neutrality. Will you be a disciple and follow after Christ or not? You don't get to change the message. You don't get to reshape the Messiah as he comes and proclaims himself to be. There is no neutrality. We come now to this account, and we'll kind of look at it together with the account before in chapter 4 as, as Jesus calmed the storm. And back to back, we walk into two situations that are marked by chaos. Two situations that we will see are uncontrollable. There is devastation, there is destruction, there is chaos. And Jesus steps into both of these situations and without a lot of fanfare, without more than just a simple word, shows his absolute supreme authority to bring order, to bring peace, to bring hope in the midst of chaos and destruction. You know, as we go through Mark, I never want us to be too far from taking that, what we're hearing in Mark and, and putting it right into our own lives. You know, as a church, we are in a moment of transition, a lot of excitement, a lot of unknown, things out of our control in a lot of ways. In your own life personally, I know that you experience that from time to time where it just feels a bit of confusion or chaos. I don't really know what's coming up next. And even if I do, I don't know what decision to make and, and how to maneuver this. It's out of our control. And both of these stories together show that that very much is the case. And even when you feel like things are under your control, it's just an illusion. But Jesus Christ has authority. And he has power. And he steps into the moment in the midst of chaos. If we will hear his voice, he offers peace. He offers direction. If you remember, in the introduction to these stories, we looked at the kingdom and what it means. And Mark goes through that in chapter 3 and 4. And I'm not going to rehearse all of it. Except to say he describes the kingdom in a couple ways. First, that the kingdom has come in Jesus, and yet the harvest is still to come. That is, the kingdom is here, but it is not fully consummated and arrived. And so there is an in-between time of Jesus offering the kingdom and that final harvest. That's where we find ourselves. And in this in-between time, what starts as hidden will be revealed. What starts as mysterious will be revealed by Christ as we come and sit at his feet. And that the kingdom grows in somewhat of a mundane way. That this offer of the kingdom doesn't come with a lot of flash, but actually comes in humility. 
And he describes it as the farmer who, who plants a seed and then just goes to bed, wakes up, goes to bed, wakes up, and does it. And one day he walks out and there's the plant and there is fruit. God is doing a work and it is gradual, but it is beautiful. And then we see that it starts small and it can seem insignificant and humble, but in the end, like that mustard seed that flourishes, so does the kingdom, that it grows and it becomes magnificent and fills all in all and will make all things new. And so this is the nature of the kingdom where we find ourselves now. And he tells us that globally and inwardly for you, the, God's rule and reign in your heart, it takes place primarily through one thing, and that is being hearers. To be good hearers. To hear God speak. To hear His promises to be filled with fear of awe of Him and to have that mixed then with faith that we would come and that could push out all other fears and could move us away from looking for hope and treasure other, other places and find it in Christ alone. All of this happens in the kingdom through hearing God's Word, through hearing the Gospel, through hearing His promises, to seeing them, re rehearsing them again at the table. And in this sort of mundane yet glorious way, over time, what God has planted will flourish and eventually will make all things new. And then to drive that point home to us, the power of God's Word we see in the midst of a storm, raging, terrifying storm, that Jesus speaks. And the power of that Word that... that Winds and waves immediately cease. They listen. And now in another uncontrollable situation, when Jesus speaks, He overcomes darkness and sin like that. And at the end of all of it, as we'll move through this section pretty quickly as we get to the table and other things today, the end of it all, our response, our hope in the midst of chaos to see God work should be exactly what Jesus says in chapter 5 here in verse 19, the message that he sends this man on. He says, go home to your friends and tell them this. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. No matter what you're walking through right now, this is the testimony of everyone whose faith rests upon Christ. He has done so much for us. The story will drive it home, but he has done so much for us, and he has given us mercy. So the demoniac, Mark spends a lot more time and words on this story than he does most things. If you were to look at Matthew and Luke, they, they tell this story, but real quickly, Mark presents it to us, and he's very sort of, of raw in the way that he talks about this man. He paints a picture for us of a very destructive, pathetic, horrible existence that this man has. R.C. Sproul and his little book on Mark says this, he says, in all of scripture, the only man whose circumstances rival the misery of this man is Job. The picture is awful that is painted there. You heard it read for you by Brian just a few moments ago. And to highlight just a couple things, he is uncontrollable 
In that day and age, the being driven out of the town away from people and being bound or chained or someone imprisoned was a poor substitute for like a psychiatric hospital. This was a crazed man in order to protect people from him, in order to protect him from himself. He's been driven out away from everyone and he's been bound and he's been tied up so that he has probably a measure of freedom but is restrained. But even those chains and those binds don't, don't work on him because with his supernatural power, he breaks them. He breaks the bonds. He's uncontrollable. He's exceedingly harmful to himself, to those around him. You see, he's screaming and crying out day and night. He's taking stones. He's gashing. He's cutting himself. Picture of a man in, in a terrible, terrible position. From a Jewish perspective, it, it describes his uncleanness. If you remember earlier when we looked at the uh, leper earlier in Mark and just the most pitiable state of being declared unclean, a cast out, away from society, away from God. He is unclean. We see it a few different ways. It says he has an unclean spirit, which actually turns out to be multiple spirits as, as that name legion. There are many he is possessed, inhabited by a demon. He lived among the dead. He lives among the tombs. Again, in a Jewish perspective, an incredibly unclean thing to be around the dead. It, it's, don't picture here like a graveyard, that, um, like a pretty cemetery that we might picture today. But it's more like out in the wilderness in some caves and crooks and crannies where there's some opening in the rocks and the poor people go and bury their dead. That's where he inhabited in that sort of wilderness land among the caves. And he was evidently around some pigs and around the pig farmers. Uncleanness surrounded him. Destruction and chaos and uncontrollable darkness abounded upon him. Now certainly, not all of us, not all men are born demon-possessed. We, we see that there's a, a lot of that in the Gospels because there is this heightened battle as Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, he comes to destroy the works of the devil that we're told. And he comes to overcome the darkness. And when he comes, the light comes in, the darkness hates it. And so you see this uptick in sort of this demonic activity. And of course, Satan is still alive and active today. And so while we might not all be demon-possessed, Scripture does tell us this in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Everyone begins this way, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In this sense, the man possessed by legion vividly illustrates the plight of the human condition. We are in bondage. We are lost. We are enemies of Christ. You are in bondage to sin. You are a slave to sin. Paul says it in Romans 6. John says it in John 8. Peter says it, 2 Peter 2. That sin has that hold on us, that darkness, that in our own power, we cannot throw off those restraints. Even now, as we walk the Christian life, in our own power, we are unable to, to throw off the temptation of sin. We need God to work in and through us, and we are unable, and this man is unable. 
in his condition is altogether pitiable. And it is a picture of a sinner. It is the picture of whom Christ has come to save. He indeed has come to save sinners. The Pharisees, the scribes, the people that saw themselves as righteous, they could never accept Christ's message because they could never get here. But here is a man who vividly pictures that. And while it might not be so ugly and blatant in our lives, all of us are born in this condition. And we need a deliverer. Now as you work through the story, you see the demons aren't looking to do battle with Jesus. They immediately realize that they are outmatched and they cry out, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. Again, for them, one, uh, a cry of terror and defense, not one of worship. But they know it's over for them. Again, this is a picture of the kingdom where Jesus not just squeaks by over darkness, but has absolute authority and dominion. And Jesus, just as he speaks and calms the sea, he speaks and he makes this man whole. He calls the unclean spirits out of them. At the end of the section here in verses 15, 16, you find this man now clothed sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. What a picture of salvation and discipleship. To go from bound in sins and chains, uncontrollable harm, heading towards destruction, to being clothed, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ. And we'll see in just a moment that he then is, is given a mission to take the mission, the message of what God has done for him and the mercy that he has shown and in kind of an unbelievable turn of fate, the first missionary Jesus sends out is a Gentile to the Gentiles. And we see Christ at work. But before we get there, there's this weird little episode of the pigs. As you read through there, you see the, as Jesus is getting ready to cast out these demons, they, they say, don't, don't banish us. Let us at least go to the pigs. And Jesus permits it. Why? <laughs> Why permit it? It's not like Jesus had to do that. Why permit it? And then Jesus, Mark, Jesus never addresses it. Mark never addresses it as a, as a problem in any way. So obviously we're not to learn from that that you know, God hates pigs or his creation in some way. There's something else being taught to us here. And I think as we look at the overall theme, I do think there's three things that we can just quickly infer from it that will instruct us what Jesus is doing. I think first by sending the, pig, the, the demons into the pigs, or not sending them, permitting them to go into the pigs, and then the pigs immediately take off, jump off a cliff, and 2,000 of them drowned. It's a lot of chaos for the farmers around. But in so doing, the Lord does a few things. First, it exposes the terrible power and purpose of the demons. That is, it shows us that not only is there a danger in evil, but also the goal of the kingdom of this age, the goal of this darkness is your destruction. It's not like you decide, am I going to serve the Lord or am I going to serve the darkness and either one of them is going to take care of me. No, the, the, the end 
of darkness. The end of this bondage, the goal of this bondage is your destruction and death. That was the purpose of the demons. As soon as they were sent out of the man, as soon as they couldn't accomplish that destruction and death in this this man, they go to the pigs and they do it. If you remember, I remember being impacted by this as Pastor Adam spoke through Revelation, but those people who have given themselves to the beast, given themselves to the age that is passing away, and as the end comes, they beg to the beast, look, we've served you, we've given ourselves to you. And it doesn't matter. It's still the goal of the beast. The goal of the, the ones they have given themselves to is the destruction of those very ones who gave themselves to them. Evil, sin, is nothing to mess around with. It is powerful. It, it, it is dangerous. But beyond that, it doesn't like promise a substitute pleasure or it's something different to pursue. Its only promise is that your end will be destruction and death. And by taking these demons and placing them in the pigs, we see this was their ultimate goal, was to take down this man destruction and death. If it can't be him, well, I guess the pigs. Secondly, I think it does just show us the value of a soul made in the image of God. The story just assumes that we delight that a soul was saved, not that we mourn that 2,000 pigs died. Again, not that we're meant to be good stewards of God's creation, and we'll see that in other places in Scripture. But here it's a misplaced mourning and sympathy if we're wondering about the pigs and the people that lost them, and we're not rejoicing with the soul that was saved. It can become a bit of a Christian trope that one soul saved is, is worth more than all the riches and all the... But, but yet it's true. If God, were to, if God gives us this building, it looks like he's going to, Man, might it be our prayer and our hope that whatever happens, all the work, whatever takes place, that God would use this, that through the presentation of the gospel proclaimed, through you inviting people, through people coming in, that souls would be saved, that they would hear the word and go from that bondage and destruction and be saved, to go from a path to death to be made new and to be given life. And in the story, we see just the value of a soul saved, And then thirdly, I think it is, it does point out to us the reality that yes, God has come and he is overcoming evil and victory will be his, and yet evil is not finally and fully banished. We live in an age that is passing away where sin and Satan are still very active, where we struggle with a life, a temptations of sin. And by Rescuing this man and yet still seeing this destructive work of the demons, I think it it points us to the reality of the kingdom he's already painted in the parables. That yes, the kingdom is here in Jesus Christ, victory is here in Jesus Christ, but the harvest is a ways off and we must pay attention to hear God's word and to believe his promises and to fear him and not man. We'll wind it down quickly. The people see the fruit of God's redemptive, of Christ's redemptive touch here on this man. And they're filled with fear. In fact, as you read it, the exact parallel happens that the sailors, remember they were scared of the storm, 
But after Jesus stilled the storm and they saw it, they were mega afraid. They were more afraid of Jesus. Here these people were afraid of this demoniac. But now that Jesus has stepped in and made him whole, they are more afraid. Because this is power that is wholly uncontrollable. But it's not just seemingly random, it's intentional and personal. And so while they're filled with fear and they get defensive and they want Christ out of the way because they realize this person is going to cause havoc in my life, the one who's been rescued from his sin falls at his feet. Please let me be your disciple. Let me be your disciple. We see he ends up taking the message and going out. The end of the last story, we looked how Mark takes the story of Jonah and uses almost the exact same language to talk about Jesus as he stills the storm. And all the parallels of they're on a boat, they're asleep on the boat, the sailors are terrified, they, they wake and rebuke Jonah, Jesus. You see all of these uh, parallels taking place. When you read the account in Matthew, it's, it says that Jesus is greater than Jonah. So you know that that comparison is there. Jonah offered himself to be thrown in the water. He sacrificed himself to save the rest of the people from the waters and the storm that day. Jesus in the moment on the boat just speaks and he calms the waves and he calms the storm. But here we see why Jesus is greater because here he's calming the greatest storm He's protecting against the wave of God's wrath that will come crashing down upon the one who is lost in their sin. And he calms that storm. He calm, he, he, he calls the waves to be, to be still and he does so in this man's life. The destruction, the, 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 the harm, the death that was becoming of him. And Jesus speaks and saves him from that. That's why he's greater than Jonah. Because he saves us from the most destructive of paths. And that's the logic Romans 8 uses. If Jesus will speak into the sea, or if Jesus has given us his son, if Jesus spared, if God has given us his son, I'm sorry, if God has given us his son, if he spared not Jesus, but gave him up for our salvation. He has already provided what is needed to calm the storm. The wave of God's wrath has been intercepted by Jesus Christ on the cross. That's amazing. Lost in sin, and God has done this for us in Jesus Christ. And yet sometimes when it comes down to the storm and chaos of the circumstances of life, we find it hard to put our faith in that God who already has given Jesus for our final victory. And he's saying if he has calmed this storm, certainly he can calm the chaos and the storm of your life right now so that together we might confess, as the man did in his missionary work, how much the Lord has done for us and how he has been merciful to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of sinners set free, what that means for us, Lord. You are kind beyond measure. You are good to us, Lord. As we sing, as we 
as we take the table, as we go from this place, might we remember what the Lord has done for us, the great things that he does. Lord, in so doing, might we remember his mercy, and might you be honored and glorified. If you would, we're going to sing just one.